You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Good morning, Trinity. My name is Sophia, and I will be reading from Genesis 1-1, chapter 27, 26-27, 2-7, 517 and Romans 515 through 17. As you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of the God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, dead reigned from the time of Adam and to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was patterned of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the, God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed by one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the man trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in the life through one man, Jesus Christ? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. I'm going to pray and we'll get started. Uh, Father God, we invite you here to open up our eyes, our hearts, our minds to receive your truth that we might be transformed by it and live by it for your glory. And in your name we pray it. Amen. Uh, Last week I started with an uncontroversial statement. I don't know if you guys were here or if you remember it, but I said, I love the Bible, which is, of course, very uncontroversial to say in a church as a pastor. Uh, But this week, I want to start with a somewhat controversial statement, and that is, I love science, okay? And and, and I get that I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek in in there, but I do. I love science, and if I were a much, much smarter person, I might have become a scientist. Uh, I would have become a Christian scientist in that sense, which is, by the way, very different from Christian science, um, which is like grape nuts, if you know what I mean. It's neither, <laughs> it's neither Christian nor science. Uh, but, but I digress. So coming back, I love learning about everything from the universe to the tiniest little creatures. And when I do, it actually deepens my wonder and love for the God who made it, Jesus Christ. And my hope is to kind of pass that along to you today. Now, I've told you all about stories of various seasons of my life where I've gone through doubting my faith and, and coming through on the other end, but this is actually an area where I haven't struggled, strangely enough. I haven't struggled, even though I know that that's a, a regular struggle for many people who are Christians, 
struggling through the, the difference between science and faith. And groups of atheists and Christians alike see a conflict between these two things, and they've kind of pitted science and faith against each other. Now, as I see it, there are two main problems that are underneath why that happens, and I'd like to share those with you as we get started before we get into God's Word. The first problem is when science gets turned into religion. Now, some people might describe this as uh, philosophical naturalism, so it's basically adding philosophy to the view of naturalism. Most people would never, ever call it a religion, but it actually has all the marks of religion. And, and here's what I mean. It's sometimes called scientism, which can be seen as a bit of a pejorative statement by some people, but scientism is the belief that science and the scientific method are the only way to render truth about the world, about reality, about existence and meaning and ethics, all of these things are expected to come from science. But you see, this causes problems because science, by its very nature, can't offer certain kinds of truth. Science isn't meant to answer things like the big why question, like why do we exist, what is our purpose, these kinds of things. It's meant to answer the what and the how questions. And I'll give you a quick example. So uh, podcaster Lulu Miller, yeah, that's her real name, Lulu Miller. Uh, she's a producer at Radiolab, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And that's, it's sometimes a science podcast, so that's why I think this is relevant. She says that she was a depressed kid. She struggled a lot with a sense of pointlessness, a haunted feeling that everything on earth was already known, that all organisms were inherently programmed to be selfish, that there was no way around that, and they were only blown off course by cold and uncaring forces like wind or gravity. And she goes on to say that for a long time, I blamed my worldview on my scientist father. He's a biochemist who took every chance it felt to remind me of my cosmic insignificance. And then she spent about a decade, quote, slowly realizing that scientific theories, rules, and taxonomies were never meant to be set in stone. That science itself is the first to admit that it's a work in progress. And so Lulu got saved from scientism. Now, I don't know if she's gotten saved to Jesus. I don't, I don't think so yet, but at least she's gotten saved from scientism, and, and maybe she's on her way. She realized scientism itself cannot be scientifically verified. And here's a great example of what I mean by that. So give, give you the example of evolution, not a touchy subject at all, right? Uh, <laughs> We, we can theorize about the fossil record and, and seek to explain observations that we make from it, but no matter what we do in that field, evolution cannot answer the why question. It just can't. It can't answer why we are here. And yet, we have been led to believe that science has disproved Christianity because science gets turned into religion. So that's one problem, but it's not the only problem. The other problem is on the other end of the spectrum. Problem number two, when the Christian religion gets turned into science. Remember, remember grape nuts, right? It's Christian science. It's not a thing, uh, okay? Uh, but the Bible and the Christian faith is not meant to answer the how question. Like, how exactly did God create the universe? It's meant to answer the why question, like why does the universe exist? What's creation's purpose? And I'll give you a good example of, of how Christians have navigated this and kind of come to this sort of conclusion from our brothers and sisters in the Reformed tradition uh, in the Westminster Catechism. My, uh, Emily and my kids were taking them through the, the Westminster Catechism right now. Here's two questions that I think illustrate what I mean. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Second question, this is actually question number three in the Westminster Catechism. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures, the Bible, 
principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. I think these guys have got it figured out a little bit here. You see, when we get off track from this, we make the same mistakes that scientism makes, only we make it on the other end of the spectrum. And I'll give you a story to illustrate this one as well. This one is from Gavin Ortland. He wrote an article where he tells a story about a college freshman who's reading in the library. And all her life, she's believed that the only way, and this is the key, only way to uphold the truthfulness of the Bible is to believe what her parents believed about creation and evolution and the age of the earth and all of these kinds of things. And, and godly Christians with good intentions, with PhDs, had told her parents so, and she told, their, her parents told her so, and so she trusted them. Now remember, she was told this was the only view Christians could hold without rejecting the Bible. But now, here she is in this college library. She's struggling deeply with her textbook. She's surprised at the strength of the scientific views that are being presented to her, but it directly contradicts what she was told Christians must believe. And her teachers are people who don't seem to be intentionally promoting some sort of scientism, some secular agenda, as she was taught to expect. And the idea that so much in her textbook is wrong feels, this is the way Gavin Ortland put it, it feels too conspiratorial to be plausible. And so she's backed into this corner that feels like she will eventually have to choose between science and faith. All because well-meaning people scientized their Christianity and demonized Christians who held different views. This is when the Christian religion gets turned into science. And so I'd like to take a look at what Christians must actually believe in order to be Christians, rather than today looking at where we might disagree. Because there are Jesus-loving Christians that believe the Bible is God's authoritative word, and they try as hard as they can to understand and interpret it faithfully, and they end up in different places on the age of the earth and origins and all these things. There are people that represent all the different views here in this room today. My goal is not to promote any one of them, but to actually look at the creation account in Genesis and my hope is I can prove to you that we don't need to impose scientific beliefs on the Bible. That there is far more wonderful and important truth for us to find here. Because when we avoid imposing science on our faith, we actually have greater charity toward one another. We have a more viable faith. We have greater freedom to explore both Christianity and scientific ideas without fear of contradicting one over the other. So let's begin, and we're going to begin at the beginning, right? Genesis 1-1, the first verse in the whole Bible, here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there is so much here. <laughs> There's no way, I mean, I could probably preach an entire sermon series just on this one verse. Everything hangs on this verse. Your worldview, uh, your knowledge of God, your salvation, how you understand the Bible, all of it hangs on this one verse. Without belief in this verse, all of those other things fall apart. This is the preamble to the whole Bible. This is the preamble to this passage specifically in Genesis. A very literal translation of it would be, in the beginning when God began to create the heavens and the earth. It's trying to set up what we are about to read. This story about when God began his work of creation. And so who do we see as the one who is doing the creating here? What is the cause that this is saying uh, created all things? It's telling us that God created the heavens and the earth, the one true God. And we got to note that this was radical and unique when this was written. At the time in the ancient world, most 
people, especially in the ancient Near East, would have had a view of creation that would have not just seen one individual God as being so powerful and so great that he's the one who made everything, but rather they would have seen many different gods having jurisdiction over many different things and creating many different things individually. This is not just radical and unique, though, in its original setting. This is radical and unique today, because it stands in a stark contrast from that scientism that we talked about earlier, which would basically say stuff created itself, right? And so this is radical. God is the only one powerful enough to create. That's what this is telling us. Now, what did he create? It it says here, the heavens and the earth. It's literally the sky and the land, And that's ancient Near East shorthand of basically saying everything, from the floor to the ceiling, essentially. And here's uh, the incredible thing. When, when did he do this? When does it say? In the beginning. In the beginning. Just try and if you can use your imagination and take yourself back there. In the beginning. When was that? Well, it was before anything else. We can say that. We know that for sure. It was in the beginning. And you know what's interesting is that science has actually shown that there was a beginning to the universe as well. And so atheist scientists and Christian scientists actually agree on this. The universe has a beginning. But the thing that science can't address is where that beginning came from. Because everything that begins to exist has a cause. Everything. We know that's true. And the universe has a cause. And if that's true, then the uncaused personal creator of the universe who exists apart from the universe is one who is beginning less. He existed outside of time eternally. This is a God who is changeless, who's immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and enormously powerful. He's incredible. Don't you want to get to know him? What else does Genesis tell us about him? Verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, as modern people, we read that and we, we go, whoa, 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 hold on. Where did all this stuff come from? What are we doing here? What are these waters? What is this? What's this deep? How did that stuff just show up? Well, the author of Genesis doesn't really seem too worried about that. He says that there are things that exist now. And, and he's saying, basically, God created them, but he hasn't finished with them. They are now formless and void. The literal translation would be, they are wild and waste. This is the pre-creation state of the universe. God has made the heavens and the earth. He's made the stuff. But now, he's going to create order out of all that chaos. And what we have to understand is, to an ancient Near Eastern person, this is where his power and his wisdom really shine. This is what they were most concerned with. They weren't as concerned as modern people are with, like, where did all this stuff come from? They were much more interested in, is there a God or are there gods who are powerful enough to order this incredible creation, this universe that we see before us? And so God's power and his wisdom are being shown here to show that he is the true king and ruler of the entire universe. Because not only does he make it, but he orders it. And he, he orders it to his exact perfect specifications. And so look, let's look at, at what he does there. Uh, and we'll, we'll split this up into two different parts. There's six days of creation. The first three days describe the spaces that God makes. The following three days show the filling of those spaces. And I'm taking this from a couple of different Bible scholars, Tim Mackey and Charles Lee Iron. So let's look at day one, 
What does it look like when God creates? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. All God has to do is speak, and it comes into existence. Just think about that for a minute. All he has to do is speak. It's incredible. And here he creates light and he separates it from darkness. But notice the fact that this is not light like we think of it. Because the sun and the moon and the stars don't get created until day four. And we might say, well, that's not scientifically accurate. That's not light. And, and we need to understand that's not the point. It's not about how light works. That's not what is being taught to us here. These are days and nights. The God who exists outside of time, he steps in and he creates time. Isn't that incredible? It's beautiful. And then verse 6 tells us what happens on day 2. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. What? Hold up. What? <laughs> what are we... I'll explain that in a minute. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Okay, again, we might say the same thing we said before. That's not scientifically accurate. How could there be a day and a night, again, when there's no sun or moon or stars? And remember, this is not trying to convey modern science. This is, in fact, ancient Near Eastern cosmology. And so let me give you a picture of how people, including the author of Genesis, saw the world and the universe. Hopefully you can see that well enough in your seat. Some of you all who are over here with our broken projector, you're like, uh, I don't know if I can make that out. But what, what I want you to see is that they would have viewed the world as basically a, a flat piece of land with pillars holding it up below it. They would have seen waters below the earth, not just above it. And they would have seen a, a firmament, a, a big, the, in, in this translation it uses the word expanse, up above the sky. Or that it essentially is the sky. It's holding up everything that they would have seen above them. Just keep in mind, like, these people are not uh, modern people. Like, we've been to space, right? We know how this stuff works. They didn't have that information. And not only does the author of Genesis not have access to modern scientific understanding, what I want you to see is that God didn't correct him really important. God didn't correct him. God inspired him to write in language that he would understand because he was communicating truth that was deeper than the scientific truth that we are all looking for. Remember last week when we talked about how can you take the Bible literally, I used an illustration of this where ancient Near Eastern people thought that they, their, their minds were basically in their guts, right? We talked about that, and God never told them to stop using that language. No, no, you need to use the brain. You're incorrect on that. He never did that because it was communicating truth that was deeper than their contemporary science. And so these waters that are above, it's, it's, their idea was this is where all the water is kept up above the sky, and they kind of saw the sky as this giant dome that was holding everything back, and, and there were almost like these windows that God would let light in and let water through. And then there were these waters that were below that we read about in, in the verses we just read, and that's where all the water that, that was on the earth was kept beneath the sky. And then there was the expanse that was the distance between them. And again, that firmament that was holding it back. Now, we know that this is not how the water cycle works, right? This isn't how it works. So does that mean that science has disproved Christianity? No. There's a different message here. Again, God in his great, unparalleled wisdom and power, he's creating order. He's giving things their proper place. 
And as we'll see in a moment, he's lovingly, get this, lovingly preparing the earth for life where humans will rule. And today we can take this and we can say, okay, great, now let's study the science of how the water cycle works and we can come to the conclusion God has created an incredible and delicate system that works without human intervention and spreads all of that much-needed water across the globe. So that's day, what is that, day two? I don't even remember what day I'm on now, sorry. Day, where are we now? I think we're on day four, verse nine. Day three, yeah? Okay, great. Okay, day three. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and called the waters that were gathered together and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. God, again, by his word, he's giving everything its proper place. Dry land and and seas are being separated and they're being given their designated location. And the living things are beginning to crop up plants and vegetation it talks about here. And what you need to, to, to read into that is food. Food. And there's a reason why this is being laid out in this way because the creatures that are about to show up are going to need it. And now at the end of day three, all three creation kingdoms have been prepared for the rule of three different types of kings. So the heavens above, the, the, the light, the dome ceiling with the sky and the, and the seas, and then day three, the dry land and the vegetation. So these places have been created. Now we look at who will rule them. Verse 14 Day four, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night. And to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So God speaks the sun, the moon, and the stars into existence. And you know what's incredible here? This is just a little, uh, a little Easter egg. And we're going to come back to it in a moment. But the word that's used for lights here is the same word that is used for the lanterns that they had in the tabernacle and in the temple. And it was alluding to a way in which the priests were supposed to conduct the worship of God's people. Incredible allusion to something that we would read later in Leviticus. And what's interesting, and I think a little bit funny about this particular section, is that there was a huge disagreement among the reformers about this passage. They were, they were very conflicted. They were having such a hard time. And the reason for it was they were trying to impose science onto God's word. And they were struggling with it. And they were trying to draw science out of God's word. And they were struggling with it. And, and what they were doing was their contemporary scientists had been learning some new things. And they were telling them, you know what? We think that the moon is not a generator of light but rather the moon is reflecting the light of the sun. And the reformers are all up in arms about this, going, well, I don't know about that. Like, how, how can it be written here as a light in God's word if it's not really a generator of light? And, and they, were, they were arguing about whether it could be counted as a real light. And, and, and if they had discovered at the end of all of that that no, in fact, that the, the moon doesn't generate its own light, but it reflects the light of the sun. Would that, you think, disprove their faith? Anyone? No. 
No. This passage isn't primarily concerned with telling us of how the moon scientifically generates light. It's telling us the who and the why. Why did God create the lights of the sun and the moon and the stars? It tells us right here. They're rulers under him. They rule time. They rule the day, it said, and the night and the signs and the seasons. And man, this was such a big deal to people in the ancient Near East, especially an ancient Near Eastern Jew who would have been hearing this or, or reading this because it would have come to govern their worship throughout their calendar year. And we'll see more about that in a moment. Remember, these two different elements I've just brought up about worship. Verse 20 now, I think we're in day five, if I'm not mistaken. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth Day. Excuse me. So here we see that God creates creatures for the sky and creatures for the sea, and He tells them to be fruitful and multiply to the point where they swarm, they fill all the spaces that He has given to them. They're, in a sense, just for the sake of this chart, they're, in a sense, they're kings of these domains, but There's a king who God sets to rule over them here and all of the other creatures. Verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and get this subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life... I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Okay, (laughs) we just read eight verses, and there was so much there. But the main point of all of it is that God has just finished his work of creation. On the earlier days... He said that his work was good. Here he says that it's very good. And a big part of why he says that is because his purpose in creating has finally arrived to its designated end. This is where everything was leading. You know, God was perfectly capable of ruling his creation on his own. This is a God with limitless power, a God with limitless wisdom, a God that that has no limit to where he is present at any given moment, and yet he chooses to share his rule with humans. He makes us, it's said, in his image, which is described here as giving us dominion and commanding us to be fruitful and multiply to the point where the earth is not only filled like it was with the other creatures, but it's actually subdued, meaning that the earth is a human domain. And just like an idol 
is an image of a false god. God created us, the one true God created us in his image. Like an idol represents a false god, God created us to represent him, to reflect his will and his rule here on earth. And then God sits down. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God is the creator king. God doesn't rest because he's tired. He doesn't rest for the same reasons that we rest. He rests because he's completed what he has set out to do. And God is continuing to rest to this day. This is ancient Near Eastern shorthand, this language of rest, to show that God is now ruling supremely over all of his creation, but he's doing so through his delegates, the ones that we've mentioned. And so he also rests because he actually wants to set a pattern for what it means to represent him as those who bear his image, to model for us the normative pattern for being human, this pattern of work and rest, work and rest. And this, this uh, passage here actually became the jurisdiction for why the Jews had the Sabbath, their day of rest. This was their instruction to remember God is in charge and they are not. That God is in charge and they are called then to worship him by representing him and carrying out his will on earth. So every week on Saturday, every week on the seventh day, they were called to stop and to remember. And you know, we do that too. That's part of why we gather here every Sunday. But what I want you to see in all of what we've just read, I know it's a lot to take in, but what I, what I hope you see is that this is all about worship. All about worship. In fact, later on in chapter 2, we're told the story about God creating uh, Adam and Eve. And in it, he places Adam in the Garden of Eden... And, and, he, and it says there that he places them there, him there to work it and keep it. That's in verse 15 of chapter 2. It's the exact same language that is used of the priests in the tabernacle later on in Leviticus. The point is, Adam was supposed to be a worshiper. He was working and keeping the garden like the priests were called to work and keep the tabernacle and the temple. And so that is what the author of Genesis was interested in communicating. God existed before time. He is supremely powerful and wise. He created everything to exist under his ultimate rule, especially humans who rule the earth on his behalf as his worshipers. And can you see how we miss all of this important truth if we try to make this passage about science or if we try to make science about this passage. And so, if the question is, hasn't science disproved ancient Near Eastern cosmology, then the answer is, of course, yes, right? But that shouldn't surprise us here at all. If The question is, does any Christian belief rely on ancient Near Eastern cosmology? And I would say the answer is absolutely not. The truth that we find here is more profound, it's more transcendent, it's more timeless than any one people, group, or age. It's just as beautiful, just as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago when this was written. That's what's so incredible about this book. But there's another key part of what all Christians believe about origins that we have to touch on, and we're going to have to blast through this pretty quickly and harken back to where we were earlier on in our service as we rehearsed the story of God 
in our time of worship, and, and we remember that the idyllic garden paradise did not stay that way, that Adam, as our representative, a real historical human being, by the way, he sinned, and not only did he sin, he was cursed to die. And the bad news from this story is actually twofold. We inherit Adam's sinful record leading us to helplessly follow the same pattern, and yet we also inherit Adam's curse to experience eternal spiritual and physical death, which brings us to a place of desperate need for God to somehow step in and restore us to our garden dwelling with him. We want to be near to him, just like Adam and Eve were with him in the garden. Restore us. We need him to restore us to right worship. We need him to restore us to right representation of him. We need, us, we need him to restore us to right rulership under him. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus came to do just that. In fact, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the God of Genesis. That's what's so amazing, that by, all him, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. It says that he is the one who spoke everything into existence, that he is God. And yet, it also says that he's like a new Adam, a new kind of human being, basically giving humanity, all of us, a cosmic do-over. And, and it's talked about here in Romans, that passage we heard earlier read in chapter 5, where it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, that's the curse, and so death spread to all men because all sin. This is not just talking about men, but humanity. All of us have inherited, as I mentioned, Adam's sinful pattern, sinful nature. And God's first act of creation, as great as it was, was only foreshadowing, uh, foreshadowing of his act of a new creation. Adam was only a pattern of the new Adam, which is described here. But the free gift, that's salvation, is not like the trespass, that's Adam's sin. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is telling us that Jesus is the true image of God. That Jesus shows us what God is truly like. That he represents God perfectly because he is God. This is telling us that Jesus Christ is the new Adam who lived in perfect obedience to God's command to the point of death on the cross. Jesus Christ reversed the curse of death by dying for us so that he might give many people God's gracious gift of eternal life. Anyone who believes, that includes you today, friend. Through Jesus Christ, God remakes us into his image. We're called God's handiwork, just like his first creation. We're in this process now of becoming more and more who he intended to be, no longer identified with that first Adam, but with the second. And we too will one day rise with the second Adam, those of us who believe. All of these things are the wonderful hope that we have in the God of Genesis 1. All of these truths are absolutely essential beliefs for Christians, all the things I've just mentioned. But none of them, friends, hear me, none of them need to be proved through science and nor are they threatened through scientific discoveries. From a Christian's point of view, science is studying God's creative power. And so we can allow Scripture to speak for itself 
and we can allow science to speak for itself, and we can assume that when there are apparent contradictions, Scripture is true, science is helpful, and we can sort out where we might be misunderstanding one or the other. We don't have to fear. Hear me today, Christian. We don't have to fear. And, and for those of you who are skeptics here, you don't have to fear. You don't have to give up rationality in order to accept the truth of God's Word. And so now I would like to conclude my time of, of speaking by inviting Jim Thomas up. And I want to just invite Jim to share with us a little bit about himself and give you guys a teaser for our Q&A time, and then we'll close our service uh, with uh, a song of reflection in just a few moments. Let me grab this mic for you, Jim. Thanks for coming and sharing yeah, with us, man. Yeah, well, yeah, I think uh, being a scientist can put you on the the spot sometimes, but being in church and talking about science is, is, is a new experience for me, so the next three <laughs> hours we'll uh, have a nice discussion. Um, no, I, I won't do that to you. Actually, I can make you glass over in probably about two minutes uh, in, in conversation, but I want to tell you a little bit about myself, my own story. Um, as, as both a Christian first, but also uh, kind of a career in science. I'm going to give a, it's going to be a very short synopsis of that. Um, I, I grew up in Texas uh, on a farm, uh, and it was a great experience. I, I ex was exposed to nature, uh, you know, raising cattle. Uh, we, we raised crops. It, it gave me a close contact with, um, with nature. And also my father was like a uh, amateur astronomer. We had a telescope. Uh, it was in Texas, uh, not much light pollution. We had uh, many hours looking at the stars and the planets, uh, and it gave me a real appreciation. Well, I was also going to Sunday school. My, my uh, mother, my father wasn't a believer. Uh, my, my mother was. She took us to church. I learned about Jesus in Sunday school as a, as a young child. Uh, and at the age of nine years old, I accepted Christ. The, the pastor said, well, um, you know, what, what do you think Jesus did for you? And I said, well, he created the air, he created the stars, and he said, what else did he do for you? And then it hit me like a brick. It's like he actually came down in the form of a man, and Jesus, he died on the cross for my sins. And I said, a God that was powerful enough to create the stars mm. and nature, uh, he was definitely powerful enough to save me. Mm. So fast forward, you know, 11 years of academic training, you know, three degrees, research fellowship. Uh, Paula thought I would stay in school forever. I probably <laughs> would have. Uh, I was a kind of a perpetual student. I loved it. I loved science. I loved learning about it. Uh, fortunately, I was recruited into the biotech world. Uh, and I spent 38 years in that developing medicines. That's a little bit more common term. Uh, but actually taking advantage of, of uh, what God had already done. So that's one of the things biotech does. It, ha it actually uses um, God's way of fighting disease in our body um, to make medicines out of it. And that was mm. fascinating to me. Mm. Through school, I was pretty eclectic. And my learning because I was just fascinated with the different sciences. So I actually, you know, did everything from biochemistry, uh, microbiology, uh, physiology, cell physiology, cell biology. I got into biotech and the molecular biology, you know, uh, some immunology. So a lot of different aspects of science, but they're all about the same thing. It's about creation. And as I got older, I, I came to realize, hey, you know, that's... God's fingerprint is, is really on everything, and my love for it was actually, actually finding out more about the Creator, hmm. finding about more about how He actually made things. And these different disciplines gave me a window into how He was actually doing some of that. And I'm going to give you a very brief example here of uh, some of the complexity and the beauty and the eloquence of actually what God has put together, and it's in the form of us. I'm going to talk about us. It's very familiar. 
I'm going to use a penny as an example. So a penny, think of a penny. I want you to try to realize, it's hard to realize, you know, how, how many, what would, what would actually a, a hundred trillion pennies look like? Can anyone imagine what a hundred trillion pennies would look like? Well, it would be like you would cover a, a, a square block in the city and you would build that stack of pennies to about 5,000 feet. So that's about three Empire State Buildings that you would build in pennies, and it would be 500 billion pounds. 500 billion pounds. That's 100,000 pennies. Well, why, do I, why am I talking about a penny? <laughs> because there are 50 to 100 trillion cells in each of us, and we're walking around with those, right? And there's over 200 different types of cells that are in us, with all these different functions. There's 78, at least 78 organs that are actually communicating inside our bodies so that I can be up here <laughs> talking, talking to you, being a conscious, having a consciousness, living. God put together something incredible, amazing in, in, in his creation, and I got to study it. <laughs> I got to study it all those years. And it's, there's more. So let's think of this penny as a cell of the 150 to 100 trillion. There are millions of chemical reactions happening in this cell every second. Every second. They're anabolic, anabolic and catabolic reactions. This is the stuff I love the most and I study the most. Uh, things breaking down to release energy being transformed to build up other parts. And that's in a single cell. And, and, what, and what, the, what drives all of that in a cell is information that God put there. And that's in our genome. It codes for everything that goes on in the cell and making more cells. That genome is equivalent to 10,000 volume library. He put in each cell. 10,000 books he put in each cell. And as I've watched my grandkids grow, they came from 23 chromosomes of, of one parent, 23 of the other, into a cell, single cell, and, and grew up into a living human being mm. with 50 to 100 trillion. So I give you that example because that's the God we worship. Amen. The Amen. God we worship, he's unbelievable. <laughs> he's unbelievable. So, so that has informed my faith. So I I wanted to give you that perspective because that kind of all came together for me. And it, mm. and it gives me a much deeper appreciation and love for our creator and a desire to be with him. Yeah. Desire to be with him. Mm. I want to be with him. So do I have all the answers? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, in science, it's, it's just observation. And science changes with time as we learn more. Do I have, and I've studied scripture for over 40 years. <laughs> Do I have all the knowledge there, you know, I need uh, to interpretate uh, scripture with, you know, perfectly? Absolutely not. So I have to be humble. I have to be humble. And I have to trust God. And I do. Hmm. And I do. So that's, that's what I wanted to say. Oh, man, that's so great. Thank you for sharing that. It's amazing. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.